Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Truma, uh, which begins at Exodus 25, verse 1. And uh, we are in the first triennial uh, reading here at KI. We're in the, I mean, everywhere that's reading on the triennial, but we read on the triennial, which means we're in the first third of this parsha. Uh, our first, our first uh, exposure to this idea of the uh, portable shrine that Moshe is supposed to give the people the instructions about building. So tell me what we know, what we remember about this idea of Mishkan. What is Mishkan? What is it? A place. A place. So it is a physical place. Where God resides, presumably. Presumably, God resides there somehow differently than other places? In Venice. In Venice. Down. God resides in Venice? Mishkan Tefillah. All right. So lots of places that our synagogues have named themselves Mishkan something, Presuming this idea, again, that something different about God's manifest presence happens in the Mishkan, right? So um, what do we know about the root of that word, Mishkan? What did you just say? Shochain. Shochain. So if we look at the word, we look at the word Mishkan... Right, so we're going to go. We're going to be looking for our root. So already we know that there's some attachment to the word shochen. Okay, so if we take that, if we drop the vowel, right, that's going to. If we go right to the three-letter root, remember Hebrew is based on three-letter roots. And my printing's terrible. Yeah. All right, so shin chaf nun. Shochen. So now we're getting the association. This is the beauty of Hebrew. Perfect. So as soon as you see three letters, you start to run through your file index in your brain of what sounds like shechana. What has the shechana sound? Shechina. Shulchan. That's a chet, not a chaf, but it's the same sound. It's good. What did you say? Shechina. Shechina. Right? All right. So, what, so then we got to go, all right, well, all those words derive them from shin chaf nun. What does this word mean? Anybody know? What does this root have to do with? Rabbi Waxman. Dwelling. <laughs> Indwelling. Presence? Yeah. Has something to do with dwell. Shechuna is neighborhood. Neighborhood. Right? A shochen in Yiddish. A shochen. In Yiddish, yeah. Okay? It's your neighbor. Right? Because it has to do with proximity of dwelling. Shechunabi neighborhood is, the, is an area in which everyone dwells, right? All right, so Shechina, what is Shechina? God's presence that dwells among us. So Shechina, we've heard this word a lot. So something about God, I'm going to leave off presence. Isn't the female name? The feminine. It is feminine. That hey at the end lets us know that it's feminine, right? So something about God and something about what? Being with us. Something about dwelling. 
All right. So in this case, it, this is an indicator about something about the nature of the divine that's different in some time, in some flavor, in some tiny taste way, different from other flavors of God, of the divine. God forbid we should suggest they're not all one, but certainly we have right, different tastes when we use different names for God. And for the rabbis, Shekhinah is about that experience of God rather than the awesome, out there, cosmic, earth-shattering, shaking, on fire, thunder, lightning, God, right? Instead of that experience, this experience for the rabbis is about the, the, the God do, that dwells in us, in humanity, in the world, in the universe. There's this sense of, of the interiority of the God experience, whether you're talking about in, you know, in the world instead of, well, hugely beyond it. Um, so this, this idea of God dwelling within, among us. So the Mishkan becomes, final nun, right? The Mishkan then is what? The dwelling place. The dwelling place. <laughs> okay. Mishkan, dwelling place. The other word that is used of this business, this tabernacle business, is Mikdash. What is the shortage? What's the root of Mikdash? Kudash. Dal, whenever I ask you for a root, right, you're going to give me the letters. Kuf, Dalit, Shin. And everyone just said, Kadosh, Kiddush, Kadish. Right? We start running the file. Think that's good. So all those have in common this root, Kuf, Dalit, Shin. Whenever we hear Kudush, we know that it's something about what? Holy. In English, holy. What is it in Hebrew? It's also separate, isn't it? Set apart. In Hebrew, there's no holy. Mm -hmm. no in, in Hebrew, there is, no there is no set apart, mm -hmm. set aside. <clears throat> in English, we say that anything that is set aside for divine purposes, for the sacred, is holy. Everything is holy. Right? In Judaism, this table, right, is sacred is holy right that, it's a different it's a different understanding in hebrew than in english because if it's not holy it's profane in english right that distinction is less jewish than it's set aside for divine purposes or it's not meaning you get to engage with it and holiness is a lot about how you engage with it whatever it is so so distinguishing you know that way is not as helpful as it is in hebrew to say this thing now is set aside, and that's what changes the nature of it. Arun Kodesh. The Arun HaKodesh. It's not just a box. It's not just the big screen TV cover. There's a big screen TV cover. <laughs> <laughs> right? It is, um, it is Kadosh, right? So already we know something about its purpose is not about regular blessed life. It's about something that's being set aside for the purpose of drawing close to the divine. So mikdash is another word for this place where we do something about 
a holy place. So, give me a word that's closer to the meaning of the Hebrew. A place that's set apart. A place that's set apart. Or maybe for being with God. A place where where yes. So, and the implication is for being for. Well, okay, that's not helpful, Amy, <laughs> at all. Um, all right, so a place that's set apart, and, and then the implication is for something to do with God. In our case, it's about the relationship to God, right? Something's going to be going on in this place that, that's set apart for something to happen about our relationship with God. Yeah? All right. So, dash. And Mishkan. Interesting, a scholar points out, can't remember who, um, that Mishkan is what it's called when we're talking about from God's perspective. Mikdash is what it is from our perspective. Isn't there also the tension here between God as transcendent and imminent? The idea that God is among us and through us, but that also there is a set-apartness about God? It's a paradox. Yes, so I'm, I'm exploring the word tension. Okay, a tension between the, two, between the two poles. So, right. So, you know, so there is definitely an understanding in, our, in the tradition that there is, there is a, a hugely wide range in terms of our experience of the divine. One is, you know, the Sinaitic <laughs> or there. creation, you know, like Big Bang kind of wow mm-hmm. um, experience. And then there is the very interior, very sometimes quiet, right? Intimate, very intimate, direct intimate experience of the still small voice. The still small voice, the, the presence of God right here. Right, right here within me, that that place that, that the Kabbalists talk about as Pnimi, the most interior place possible, right, is also a profound experience of the divine. And that range is something that we explore all the time, communally, individually, um, and uh, sometimes I think we're more open to one awareness of it and sometimes another. I once was in a class on Avinu Malkenu, where the rabbi said that the Malkenu part of it, forgetting about the, the name king, was the kind of the far away end of the scale, and the Avinu father was the total interior, and that by saying Avinu Malkenu, we were taking the two together. Lovely. 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 So, this, um, so this crazy idea of a place that we're going to create for the divine to somehow be experienced by us differently um, is this whole idea and major amounts of the Torah are devoted to it. Major, major space, literally space, is given to the directions to build the Mishkan and then a whole repetition of everything when it's being done. So this idea is huge in Torah. And so we're going to look at the text a little bit this morning, and then we're going to look at some texts about this idea of Mishkan. Um, 
It and seems to me that um, reconstructionism is totally against this whole idea of, of a place. I thought God is throughout the world. There's no one place where God would be found. Okay. <laughs> so, <clears throat> Bert says I say so all the time. This idea that God is in a place somehow differently than in every other place, it's not Reconstructionism that is the first part of our tradition to struggle with what the heck that's supposed to mean, right? As soon as you leave biblical Israelite cult religion, you have an issue with God's presence somehow being more manifest in one place than someplace else. Um, in biblical Israel, it would have been normative to understand God's presence being a bit more concentrated in one place than another place. Gods were very much um, a part of the place that gave rise to that God idea. Gods were tied to place. Once we have the destruction of the temple and we have the exile of the, actually even you know, post first temple destruction and we have people you know, living in Babylonia, you now have a different relationship to that idea. Well, wait a second, right? If God is, total, is tied to place and it's the temple, you have the, the new iteration of the Mishkan, what does that mean for us in Babylonia? Read New York. <laughs> and so, so there's a real struggle with, wait, what? Right, so... It never entirely leaves the people because which way do we face when we pray? Isn't God north? Isn't God west? Like what? God certainly south. <laughs> so, um, well, we're facing each other. See, we face east here, but actually, everybody faces Jerusalem. So, so in fact, we're facing each other. So, this orientation towards Jerusalem. We, we've maintained that remnant of an understanding that there's something there that is different. So I think what we would say today is that it's not God who was any different in that place than this place, but we who are different. Do, you know, I ask this about Aaron's age all the time. Is there a place you experience God differently than other places. <clears throat> Is there? Well, some sure. people say the Western Wall, but I don't feel that way. Personally. <laughs> I think I'm hiking in Temescal. Hiking in Temescal. Yeah. Yeah. Nature? Lighting candles on Shabbat. Lighting candles on Shabbat. Mm -hmm. Wherever that is, I bet. Mm -hmm. Torah study. <laughs> <laughs> you are a square geek. Yay! <laughs> Love that. <laughs> um, <laughs> In the, in the birth of a baby. In the birth, in the birth of, of a baby, child. those moments. But of... I think we, the Jewish tradition, if I understand it properly, even the most traditional says we cannot know God. We cannot right. see God's face. We're totally not going there. So, but this idea of the, there's a concentrate, there's a there's a change in our experience of the concentratedness mm -hmm. of the divine presence. There's a there's a way that the Mishkan is supposed to create that experience. Yes? So hopefully some people feel it at KI. Right? That this place that we've built together as a community, that the community built it. Right? Not the Vatican. 
you know, not some other thing that then says, okay, here's your building, come whenever you want to feel close to God. The community builds it and, and in an attempt to give us a place where our communal experience and perhaps even individual experience of the divine is intensified. So this is, this, is, this is really the understanding rather than it's something about God, it's something about us. And, I, and that's a very old idea in the tradition because the rabbis already asked this question, the entire world is filled with God's glory. How can we talk about it living somewhere? So th- this is a very early tension. I want to go to uh, Torah text for a bit because it's going to get at the, the classic interpretation of one of these lines of Torah is going to get right to this question. So who would like to begin at 25-1? The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the Israelite people to bring me gifts. You shall accept gifts from me from every person whose heart so moves him. And these are the gifts that you shall accept from them. Gold, silver, and copper, blue, purple, and crimson yarns, fine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, dolphin skins, and acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil and for the aromatic incense, Lapis lazuli and other stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Exactly as I show you the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, so shall you make. God speaks to Moshe, saying, Speak to Israel, that they should. Take for me truma, gifts. Truma is something you take that you have that you set aside to give over for divine purposes. Why? Why does God tell all of this to Moshe? Not to people directly. Right. Why doesn't God just say, okay, here's what you're going to do? the people have said they don't want to talk directly to God. Okay, so God is doing them a favor by saying, I'm going to give you instructions about how you can draw near to me. Because last time, I tried tried to draw near to you, what happened? We freaked out. We freaked out. Cannot do it. So God has learned out of love and a desire to be close, presumably. I mean, we read this into, right, that revelation. And a desire to be close and a desire to be in relationship and a desire to be intimate. God manifests somehow God's presence, speaks directly to the people, the beloved. And what do they do? They They cannot handle it. They can't handle the intimacy, the immediacy, the overwhelming, presumably, the overwhelming experience of being that close in relationship, that direct an experience of the divine. Can't handle it. So, out of, again, presumably, love, God withdraws a little bit, right? Uh, and talks to Moshe and says, okay, we're going to set up date night. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you about how maybe... We can start this relation. We can start this courting, you know, of each other, so that it doesn't blow the people out of the water, mm-hmm. right? So it, that was too much. Clearly, okay. Well, here's here's a way that they can experience closeness without being completely blown away. 
So God speaks to Moshe. Tell the Israelites, Vaikhuli Truma, that they should bring me Truma. Me'ech kol ish. Asher yidvenu libo tikhu et Trumati. You should, who should you take this from? Kol ish, every person. Asher yidvenu libo. What does this mean? Who is nadiv lev? Who does so with a voluntary heart? Tikhu et trumati. In this way will you take for me my gifts. Meaning, you know, that, my birthday presents. <laughs> they're mine only because you're going to give them to me voluntarily. Otherwise, they're not gifts, are they? Now, not to be completely mistaken in our, in our reading of how the Mishkan gets built, there's also a tax. That's going to happen too, right? You know, like that, that the people are going to have to to pay, they don't, it's not always going to be a truma, right? They, they're not always going to experience truma. But it seems like for the most, for most of the material for building the Mishkan, it's going to come from Nadivlev, a place of voluntary contribution from every human being in the group who wants to do that. Whose heart is so Correct. Why? Why not just say, I'm going to assign to each of you, you know, what it is you bring. Or we're going to say membership is X amount of dollars and that's going to, and then you have 15% added for the building fund and boom, we're done. What? Why? When you, you voluntarily give a gift to somebody, then you're creating part of the relationship. It's, so this is about creating a mutual uh, desire to be together. So if... The instructions have just been bring three shekels each person and we'll figure out how to get it all done. How does that change it? It's, it's now... Personal about it, there's know. nothing personal about it. There's, when I go to the Mishkan, I like everybody else has three shekels in there. Okay, well that would be personal though. If everybody had to give something, it'd be personal. There's my three shekels right there. But it's not mutual. It's, it's, it's a command to do it. Okay, I have to do it. Aha. It's partnership. So it's partnership. It's mutuality of relationship. So on. So it's not just getting the stuff. It seems that the stuff needs to be for it to be a mishkan. The stuff needs to be. It needs to be an offering of the Israelite into mutual relationship. Is there also some aspect of timing here? Because maybe people are moved at different times of their lives in a different situation. So I don't know if is this happening all at once or... So figure out what moves you right now mm-hmm. to give. Mm-hmm. We got this project. Mm-hmm. You figure out right now, at this time, mm-hmm. for you, what are you moved to give? Mm-hmm. Right? So, yes, it is all going to kind of happen at one time. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be like they have three years right. to think about it or right. pay their pledge over three right, years. Right. It has to happen now. But I do like that idea of at different times we're moved to give different things. Mm-hmm. So right now, <clears throat> go home and figure out what is it you want to offer to the, to the building of this Mishkan. Lovely. Yep. So mutuality, partnership, relationship, voluntarily giving something to the one you want to be in relationship to. If I give you a present, 
But someone said to me, you have to give Pam a present, right? Or she's not going to have lunch with you. So I come to lunch and I give her the present and she knows someone's told me that. It's very different, isn't it, than if I come to lunch and just say, I wanted you to have this. When I thought about us and I thought about you, I, I realized I want you to have this. There's something very different about, about what that gift means to her. Um, and about what it means for me to give it, hopefully, right? Hopefully we give it a little bit differently, Pam. Since it brings up the heart, and so I think it's what is in our heart when we're giving a gift. And to me, that has a lot to do with love and intention. You know, like you were saying, if you give even to a human being out of your heart, you have some intention of maybe you want them to feel appreciated or loved. So it's interesting that it uses the word heart. What, what else, what do we know from biblical uh, Hebrew? Uh, lave. What is lave, the heart, the seat of in biblical parlance? The soul. Not biblically as much. It is also the seat of wisdom, of knowing. When you know something in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, you knew it here, Right? It's later that we switched to knowing everything from here, right? This is the place of dots. This is the place of getting it, of, of discernment, of wisdom. And for me, I love what you just said because it ties into why it's not the brain. Do, do, you know, because in biblical parlance, in, in, this, in this part of ancient Hebrew, the idea is you, you don't really know something unless you bring to it the wisdom of the heart, Otherwise, it's just thinking. It's like a gut feeling. Gut. So, uh, they didn't know about the gut. So. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know from Kishkes, right? So, um, so right. So it's that, that sense of I, I know it other than just analytically thinking about it. I, I know it or I, you know, I've decided to do this out of a sense of truly fe- you know, feeling that as being right, as being what I'm called you know, to give out of love, you know this the science that's shown that there's a there's a connection directly from the heart to the brain that there's a way that there's this part of the brain heart connection that bypasses the the bigger brain and so it's like that the heart really is run by its own part of our like our brain and our heart have their own connection that's separate and it's like whoa see biblical Israel and rabbinic Hebrew knew that, right? They, that's something we've known for a long time, that there is a direct correlation between the mind and the heart, that, that, that is not, you know, what we've come to expect of in the West. This, this also goes with aging theory and how when you're aging and in the last part of your life, you're... You come together, and your brain not, may not be as efficient as it used to be, but your wisdom can make up, makes up for it. And wisdom and aging uh, so go together. So there we is hope. a wonderful book. There's <laughs> a wonderful book called The Wisdom Paradox. I believe that's what it's called, by a scientist who, um, a neurologist, you know, who uh, studies this idea that as we get older, the brain becomes less agile at some things, but remains completely flexible in other ways. That it doesn't matter how big the holes are, it matters how big the cheese is. Right? The same amount of holes can be there, it's about how big the cheese, how much cheese there is. Um, and that what happens is, 
as we age, as we live, as we get good at this art of living, we become what he calls effortless experts at certain things, right? So th- that we don't have to work as hard. We don't have to think as much. We, we somehow know these patterns. There's also a book called From, a- From Aging to Saging. Famous in our circles. Yes. Famous in our circles. <laughs> From aging to saging, right? right? This idea of we become elders and, and, and wise in a way that is not about thinking, right? And not about the efficiency of, let's say, working memory, which is what so much of thinking is what we think about it being in the West. There's an interesting aspect to this. If none of the Israelites were moved in their heart, <laughs> no, really, there, there would not be a Mishkan and there is only a Mishkan to the extent that they are moved, which is exactly the situation with synagogues today. <laughs> that is exactly and, right. And, and then the Mishkan, you know, metaphorically you say, where does God dwell? God dwells where we love and where we where let we are God moved. Where, Yeah, someone said, where, where we let God in. Lovely. Someone said, God, where is God? God is where you let God in. Right, very Hasidic. Yes. Right, the famous Hasidic. What is that? Where does God live? That? God lives wherever we allow God in. I forgot who. Hmm? who Me was too. It? Oh. <laughs> the Kutzker Rebbe. The Kutzker Rebbe. Of course. When in doubt, <laughs> probably the Kutzker. <laughs> All right, so. Vizotatruma asher tikhumeitam. Right, and so this is the truma that you will take from them. Right, what are we looking for? We're looking for gold, silver, and copper, because you need metals. We're going to need precious metals in order to uh, have this idea of Mishkan that's going to get communicated to Moshe. Blue and purple. There, you could read a whole bunch of literature and scholarly research, people's PhDs on Argaman. What is this? Um, is it a mixture of blue and red that reads as purple? Um, male and female, you know, and, and that come together to make this, this color that's about the f- fusion of both, whatever. So we're getting, you know, these terms uh, that people spend a lot of time trying to unpack because um, some of them don't seem to make a lot of sense. Some of them are, we only see in the tabernacle so we don't know what they are outside of that, right? There's no other reference point for us to know what they are. Or it's Elim, so we get all this tan ram skins, dolphin skins, and acacia wood. Probably, yes, it's not a dolphin as we think of dolphin. That would make a terrible lot of sense. In the middle um, of the desert. In the middle of the desert, right? Um, how do you even get one? Whatever, you know, so oil, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil, and for the aromatic incense. Remember, incense is precious, Right? These are very expensive things. Lapis lazuli and other stones for setting for the aphod and for the breast piece. So we get the initial list. There's going to be a lot more right, that's going to be needed, but here's kind of the initial list of m- most folks should be able to contribute something of one of these. Where did they get it? Some of them from the Egyptians. Some of them from the Egyptians. The jewelry right? that they borrowed. That they Borrow. Right? <laughs> the way one borrows a Kleenex. 
right? Um, so, yes, that they borrowed. That the, Remember, the Egyptians were going to be disposed favorably to the people. Um, so the gifts that the Egyptians gave to them, right, because their hearts were... <laughs> were steered <laughs> to give them very different from how the Israelites are supposed to give them, yes? Right? So the Egyptians gave stuff to the Israelites, but it, it was very, made very clear in our text that they would be disposed to do that, presumably by God. Right? That there's a, there's a coercion flavor to that that is completely antithetical to what we see here. That same jewelry that someone was kind of coerced into giving you, you must give with an absolutely open and free, voluntary heart. All right. Now here we come to the famous, (laughs) famous, famous verse of Torah. Verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Thank you, Reuben. Ve'asuli mikdash. And they will make for me a, now we're using this term, mikdash. Right? Because for God, it's all about them setting aside a spot. Them setting aside a place. Them delineating with their gifts a space that is set aside. Setting apart a private room. Yes? A chamber. So God says, I'm tired of traveling. <laughs> and uh, I want to settle down. But it was a portable <laughs> There's wonderful, wonderful parallels in the rabbinic literature, Reuben, that go to exactly that metaphor. One is about the king who marries off his daughter, and he loves her so much, so much, that the king begs the prince to whom the bride has been given, the princess has been given, begs him, please, I love her so much, please build me a room in your palace. Hmm. Right? That this is the idea, that, that, that God wants that we should make in our shkuna, right, in our neighborhood, Will you give me a grandmother suite, right? A mother-in-law suite, right? Just build me a little. It doesn't have to be huge, but build me a place to be with you. And they, they, they will create, they will make for me this mikdash. That I may dwell betocham. Among them is how we usually translate this. So the bet, that, that word, that bet of betoham is a prefix. What does the prefix bet always mean? In. in. Literally, it's in. Now, if it gets t- attached to a word that d- doesn't make a lot of sense about, you say with, through, among, but the rabbis are not going to leave it alone that that bet usually means in. Why? Because what should this grammatically say? Let them build me a mishkan that I may dwell in them. In it. In it. 
is what it should say grammatically. Bitocham is a bit of a surprise, unless you know this, which we all do. But if you don't know this, it's a bit of a, huh? If you know Hebrew grammar, you're like, let them build me a mishkan so that I may dwell, what's going on with the grammar? In them. It should say in it. Where do you think the rabbis go? What does this mean for the rabbis who explicate this text? The purpose of this is ultimately that we be godly, that God come through us, and that God is not separate. We're not here, and God is in this box, but that God is among, in between us, in our relationships with each other, and in ourselves. So why a mikdash? I think it's that God is saying, let me, let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them or in, um, in, I, I, in them, that we have to build a sanctuary, we have to create a space for God to dwell. And I look at that with our own minds. Where are we creating this sanctuary for God to dwell? In, in me, you know, in us. Okay. It sounds to me like it, it, the Mishkan is built more for us than for God. Lovely. Lovely. The Mishkan, this is completely normative in our tradition. The Mishkan <coughs> is not for God. The Mishkan is for us. So why, why do we need a Mishkan for God to be among us? What is the need you said, you know, it's, for, it's to meet our needs, essentially. What is our need to make a mishkan in order for God to dwell among us? So that we are in community by bringing from each of us something that then is going to be a part of this structure, this building project. It makes us a community to have a building project. Ask anybody in the Jewish world. Ask anybody in the nonprofit world. It builds community when you have a campaign. Remember that. <laughs> right? It's not about the Mishkan. It's about the people having a building project that they do together from Nadiv Lev, from a place of voluntary contribution of what's beautiful to them. Now, we can go literally, we can go metaphorically with that, and it works across the board, as Pam has so brilliantly said. What is it we're doing to actually build a place for God to dwell in our lives? Voluntarily, from our hearts, with beautiful and precious contributions. Where is it happening in our lives? Because Torah is true not for once, it is true for all time. So what is the eternal truth of truma that we seem to need so that it's for us, it's very clear that it's for us, we need to come together as a community, bringing these things, all of our lives, so that God dwells differently among us than if we don't do that. If we don't create that. You showing up every Friday, every other Friday, once a year, 
is if it's Nadiv Lev, and you create this, I am a holy roller mm-hmm. in that I believe literally, fundamentally, this is true. The presence of God is among us differently when we come together as community and create what we have here. It's different. It's intensified, it's concentrated, and it's for us. It changes us. Because when we are changed in that way, where, where are we going to go with this, of course, we, we have a different impact on the world around us, on the human community, on the planet that we share with other creatures. We we're moved to act out there the rest of the time differently because of this. Because in that way, we have created a space within each one of us, because I love this commentary that I studied on the word betocham, because it could say that I may dwell in it, meaning the Mishkan. It also could say that I may dwell in it, meaning in the people. It doesn't. Am is also masculine singular. Nation. That I may dwell in it, meaning the community. It doesn't say that. It says that I may dwell among them, not it, the community. What is that getting at? People. That I may dwell in each one of the people, because only if I dwell in each one of the people differently do you become an Am Kadosh. Do you become a nation, a unified people? It, God's presence can't dwell differently just in the people. Right? It has to be betocham in each of them, individually. That that's what then creates a people that is together, that then can go out and have that major impact when you put all of that momentum behind whatever it is we choose to do with that. But it has to start with every single one of us figuring out where are we building the Mishkan for God in our in our lives. Bringing your son to Torah study the Friday of his bar mitzvah, for example, <laughs> is creating that space for the divine to dwell in your simcha, in your amazingly joyful occasion differently. Let's look. Let's look at some texts on this idea. <clears throat> And whenever we have a text, we have an underlying question. So we've answered some of the questions about Mishkan. But if we, if we start back at the beginning of this Mishkan business, one of the first questions is why build something? We just got at one aspect of why build something. But we're going to look at that top text. Somebody read what Rabbi Tarfon said. See, he doesn't just exist at the Passover Seder. <laughs> How great is work, for even God, who is everywhere, will not bring the divine presence to rest on the Jewish people until they have done work. As the Torah says, they must make for me a tabernacle, and then I will dwell among them. So Rabbi Tarfon is, is focusing on what word in that, in that sentence, let them make me a tabernacle that I might dwell among them. Make. 
They must make it. Why, what is his, what does he seems to suggest about why they have to, like, why, what's important about the Mishkan business for Rabbi Tarfon? Labor of your hands, sweat equity. Sweat equity. I love that. The sweat equity of the Mishkan. Right? That you have to do some work. This is also, of course, for us, a spiritual truth. It ain't just gonna happen that you experience God differently. Right? Sometimes, yes. Boom. You happen upon a God moment and you had nothing to do with preparing anything about it. Right? Um, But most of the time, most of the time, if we want God to dwell among us, then we have to work. We have to do things. We have to engage in some kind of labor for that to happen. For me, this is what I love about the fact that we make Havdalah at Shabbat. It's not like... It's not like we bless the, the Shabbat and Shabbat coming in and then do all that groovy stuff that we do during Shabbat and then sunset and, sunsets and it's done. Instead, we do Havdalah. What is Havdalah? Separating. separating. We make brachot. We make a blessing about separating. Why? What's, what are we saying? Blessing about going back to work. What do you think Rabbi Tarfon would say? Hmm? But, but why, why bless the distinction between Shabbat and the fact that we're going to work now? Why is that blessed? Shouldn't we be like, oh, Shabbat's over. Mm-hmm. No, can't it last a little longer? Like, what is that bracha? Work is sacred. Because there's holiness in work. Ha, 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 ha. So Rabbi Tarfon would say, thank you, Linda, that, that work is sacred. Also, this is why when I talked about what kadosh means, it's that time of Shabbat is set aside. Only for those things that will help make us experience our relationship, you know, to God and each other differently. So that time is set aside for God. It doesn't mean the other six days are worthless. It doesn't mean they are profane. Even though there's even that word in Hebrew, chol. You know, it's not kadosh. But, But in English, you get this kind of judgment, you know, that one's better than the other. The ratio is six to one. It's not half and half even, right? It's six to one. The six days are meaningful. They are the time of creation. They are the way that we do the holy work that comes out of our experience of the divine dwelling among us. It cha- the divine dwelling among us changes, and the experience of Shabbat changes, hopefully, what we do in those six days. And we, we need to be about the work, both out there and you know, in here too. The malachah is, is, is sacred also and important. Tikkun olam, that whole business is about we have to do the repairing. And, you know, I just thought of too is that, that Seems it must have been so important to the people who, for whom work was not a choice, for whom for centuries it was just, I'm going to tell you what to do and you have to do it. So here they're able to decide. So the difference between Pharaoh as God and Yudhei Vavhe as God is, it's not going to be acceptable unless and until it is voluntary. Because you slaves have to learn something. 
You slaves have to stop and have to discern. What is it I want to give? That is a new practice for slaves. And let me tell you something. Abadim Hayinu, yeah, we were, but guess what? How many of us are still Avadim in terms of that sense of not servants, but slaves, right? How often do we stop and say, take the time, do the practice, you know, come to community, whatever it is that's going to help us answer the question, what am I ready to give out of a voluntary heart? What would I be moved? We have to stop being slaves long enough to even ask that question. Beautiful, Linda, beautiful. They were just slaves. So, Linda, you get to read the next one because that's where he's going to go. Why sacrifices? Why all this crazy business about what you're going to do in the Mishkan? Why do they, you know, what the God does God need sacrifices for? So you're going to answer that by reading? Change was very difficult for the Jewish people. Therefore, God gave them animal sacrifices because that is the type of service they were used to, not because it was the best type. God wanted to turn their sacrificial service of idols to the service of the one God. Okay, don't worry about it. So I just gave you uh, who said it. Uh, so, so this refers to another part of who they were. They were slaves who were exposed to and living among, but also even before that, right? You know, that the experience before sacrifice to yud heh vav what was their what was their experience with all that business? Um. They, they were living amongst people who also did that, right? So, because the rabbis are going to ask the question, why animal sacrifice? Pagans do animal sacrifice. They were all doing animal sacrifice. Why wouldn't God come up with some brand new, <clears throat> way better thing for the Israelites to do than that animal sacrifice business that all of the pagans do? As they say in Israel today, modern Hebrew, paganim. Um, why? So this is the answer of Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. Tell me. Uh, I would say that change doesn't happen like that. Change is a slow process. And to expect people to change like that is too much. To expect them to just all of a sudden accept women rabbis? <laughs> too much. Would be crazy. <laughs> too much. Too much. It takes time. It takes a while for people to change What's going to allow them to be a new vehicle for being in relationship to divine service? to the divine? Because otherwise, if you just change it, it's so jarring. It's the change they focus on, not what the change is supposed to be getting at, which is being a vehicle for them having a relationship with the divine, right? And experiencing the divine. Uh, I guess I've read somebody who described the birth of new religions said you always have to keep a little bit of the old. I mean, Christianity had a Sabbath, a different Sabbath, but there was a Sabbath nonetheless. So every religion that starts from another religion has to keep some of the old, otherwise it's too dry. If you want Paganim, if you want pagans celebrating your business in December instead of solstice, you better give them a tree. <laughs> right? And it... It's true. You, it worked, right? It, as long as I can have the tree, 
I'm good. Because that's what I'm attached to right now is the tree. That's what means winter. That's what means hope. That's what means the return of the light. That's what indicates to me we, we have a reason to believe it's all going to be okay and we're going to celebrate that. It's the tree. It takes a long time to revalue, to reconstruct <laughs> what the tree means or, or what it's trying to point us to. And they were already celebrating the pagan holiday in December. And people say that, assuming Christ existed, he was born in the spring, not December. So this has been going on for a long time. Exactly. Exactly right. Exactly right. Okay. Let's read the next one. Somebody read the next one. How, what, what are we, how are we doing on time? Am I over already? It's 10.30. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, Ruben. I love you, too. Um, are we at 11? Not yet. All right. Um, I, I love this. Uh, go back. Go. To, we're going to skip the one in the middle because I kind of covered it a little bit. Um, and the next one says, you see where it says the Hebrew term Nadiv? Right? We talked about Nadiv Lev. So we're going to go to that Shoresh. This comment, all these commentaries, a lot of them go back to this idea of the three-letter root. V. Nun, Dalid, Vet. This word suggests not so much um, the office of a status, the office or status of a noble, because this word can also mean um, it does go to nobility, but rather the characteristic of nobility. It is linked to the term for generosity, nidava, a free will offering, or nadivlev, one whose heart moves him or her to contribute. Here, the idea of nobility is bound up with what noble people do. They're generous. It's not about station, but about behavior and character. Why do I like that? That that this word becomes the word for nobility? Is that that's another thing, I think, the people bringing something, that nadiv lave, right? It dignifies them. They've been slaves. They had nothing. And they certainly didn't get to decide not only what they did, but you know, what, they, what they did with what they had. And that there is a dignity. There is a nobility that comes from giving of what one has, right? For, for that purpose of building this Mishkan. Here at KI, we always tell people, you will never be turned away because of an inability to pay dues. Never. What can you pay? We don't say forget it, okay, so you won't pay dues. We say, what can you pay? Even for somebody who's really struggling. Why? There is a dignity in giving $5 a month, $2 a month. There is a dignity that comes from contributing what one can um, that I think is really important for us to remember. I think the, the flip side also is true that um, to see everybody as being able to give and not to see, oh, well, some people can't, you know, they're of a lesser ability. When I taught at a school that was, uh, everybody lived in a um, housing project, a very, you know, a poor school, there was a food drive. And it struck me then that I, I was not <coughs> thinking of these kids as being able to give. 
But their being able to bring a can of something gave them that dignity that they were helping other people and they were not themselves to be pitied or not, you know, able to participate in that. That, that they are not without agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a power that they could help other people as well, that they were not um, needing to receive. Everybody could help. Everybody, which is great. So we're going to drop down to the bottom, very bottom of the page to the words of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Rabbi, I just wanted to say Naduva is also the Yiddish. Uh, Naduva. It's there in, in Yiddish as well. It carries over. Lovely. Thank you. There's all, but there's also an important message about the Exodus, meaning in this building project. The culmination of the Exodus is not the crossing of the sea and not even the revelation of the Torah. The culmination of the Exodus is the building of the Mishkan in the empowerment, thank you, Laura, of the powerless to be noble, to be generous, to contribute. That we tend to see Sinai as the pinnacle of the Jewish experience. And then it's like, ugh, I know we have all of this. The ring shall be and the energy of a three cubits high. That like it's this big drop-off. It's this big, you know, anticlimax after Sinai. And it's Sinai that we continue to talk about all the time as Sinai happens every day, Sinai happens at every moment, God's always calling, are we responding? Right? This is the whole thing. And I love this by Rabbi Sachs, that that is not the pinnacle of the experience. That's not the point of the Exodus. The point of the Exodus is the building of the Mishkan, is taking the powerless, oppressed people Objects, people as it, people as objects, and charging them and giving the opportunity to be noble, to be generous, to contribute, to build this place themselves, that it builds them as a community, that intensifies the experience of the divine for them, that focuses their attention on the fact that the divine dwells within each one of them, That is how slaves become free people. That is how slaves are empowered to change the world. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.